0: Today is April 2nd, 2012, and my guest is David Otter of MIT. David, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, our goal today is to lift a veil covering a phenomenon that is extremely important and very little known, and that is what is going on with the government-run disability insurance program here in the United States, part of the social security program. And today's discussion will draw on a recent working paper of David's that we'll put a link up to, which is the unsustainable rise of the disability roles in the United States, causes, consequences, and policy options. Let's start with some basics. Um, what's the idea behind the insurance program? When, when did it start? How is it funded?
1: Sure. So the Social Security Disability Insurance Program was started in 1956. Uh, its intention is to insure workers against loss of income and access to health care in the event of a work limiting disability that uh, ends their careers prior to their reaching full retirement age. Uh, it's paid for by a part of the payroll tax, so essentially 1.6 percentage percent of earnings up to a certain amount annually uh, is uh, devoted to the Social Security Disability Insurance uh, Program. So after you've worked approximately five years uh, at a fairly high level of participation, so pretty much full-time, you will be insured uh, under this program. And then as long as you are insured, uh, if you become disabled, uh, you can apply for and qualify for SSDI benefits
0: and if you were and if you're approved if your application is is uh, accepted what's the benefit level
1: so the benefit level a a typical recipient will at this point will receive benefits of about $1100 a month in cash benefits uh, and that is indexed to inflation, so it rises over time in nominal terms to keep pace with uh, the growth of prices in addition, uh, two years after the onset of a disability, you would get access to the government's Medicare program, which is the same uh, health insurance program that retired Americans get and that's a quite a generous program so uh, at this point probably the value of the medical benefit for many individuals, uh, is as high as the value of the cash benefit. And I should say this is not, it's, it's not a huge amount of money, uh, and it's not a great lifestyle by any stretch of the imagination. However, uh, the uh, $1,100 a month figure probably understates the value of that benefit because you need to remember that that's that kind of guaranteed income from the, for the rest of your life, or actually until you reach the full retirement age, at which point you go on to Social Security retirement and continue to receive the same benefit. Uh, it's guaranteed income indexed to inflation with the government behind it. Uh, so it's sort of, it, it's the closest financial product equivalent would be an annuity, which is uh, a, basically a guaranteed uh, stipend uh, that uh, supports you until uh, such time as you no longer have financial needs.
0: And you said the benefit is, is on average 1100 a month. Is it tied to your earnings history in the same way is. Social Security? It's exactly
1: is? the same. It's, it's calculated in exactly the same way your Social Security retirement benefit would be calculated except using a shorter earnings history. So the first a uh, small amount of income is replaced at 90%, uh, then at 32%, then at 15%. So the benefits can get reasonably high. For someone with very high earnings, you might have a security disability benefit as much as uh, twenty-five uh to $3,000 a month. I don't think it can go higher than that at, at present.
0: So as much as 30 thousand a year at the high end? yeah mm-hmm. plus the but, medical i mean benefits. for someone who is
1: getting that that would be that would be a uh, a small percentage of their prior earnings, so their replacement rate is actually higher for lower income workers right there 's a
0: redistributive kick in the system that 's right it 's meant to be progressive but uh, you don 't have on to the run. other hand the taxation <laughs> is regressive <so. laughs> well, well and let 's talk let 's talk about the taxation of your retirement of, excuse me of your disability insurance benefits so if you are disabled – and we're going to talk in a minute about what that literally means, but let's leave it vague for now. If you're disabled and you're not working and you're getting this benefit, uh, what if you work a little bit? Uh, does your benefit go down? Does it stay the same or are you not allowed to work at all because you're disabled? What's the – So
1: there, there's what's called a substantial gainful activity threshold, uh, which uh, a couple of years ago was $1,000 a month. Now rises approximately at the rate of inflation. And essentially, what it means is, you're if you earn more than SGA, uh, you are uh, in theory not disabled from the perspective of the Social Security Administration. Uh, They will uh, typically they will reduce your benefits. You may lose your benefits for a month uh, if you work above SGA. If you do it uh, frequently, your benefits will. Be reviewed, and you may uh, lose access to the program. You you can be viewed as uh, having recovered.
0: And how do so, they? But of course, you really—if you could make some money on the side, you wouldn't want to advertise it.
1: Sure. So you have to basically be making money under the table. Uh, yeah. The, the the thing is, um, not by intention, but the program creates a very very strong incentive against. Uh, subs- meaningfully participating in the formal labor market. Because once you receive the benefit, as I said, it's an annuity. So, you know, the kind of present value of a disability award for someone in their mid to late 40s is approximately $275,000. So it's the equivalent of someone giving you $275,000 in cash all at once and allowing you to invest it so you could live on those, uh, you know, to a living extent on those returns on that investment. Well, uh, you don't want to, you know, so let's say, you know, let's say you have, you have a work limitation, you receive social security disability, and then you say, hmm, well, I could, I, you know, I, now that I look at it, I realize I could work sort of half-time at a low-wage job, and I would probably, you know, could make $1,500 a month, and I could, you know, uh, I'm pretty confident I could go on with that for a while. Well, that's a pretty risky proposition relative to continuing to receive guaranteed cash income in medical care uh, and that index, the income index to inflation for the Social Security Administration. And so you might be understandably extremely reluctant to forego that and return to the workforce to eke out a marginal and insecure living relative to uh, the marginal but secure living you would have on the Social Security Disability Insurance Program.
0: But the bottom line is, is that if I'm receiving those disability insurance payments – and I take a job that's part of the the payroll system. That is, if I'm yeah. going to be paying Social Security taxes with the same Social Security number, then the Social Security Administration would recognize that, and that would put my benefits in jeopardy. So if I if I would Correct. like to supplement my pay my payments, and uh, and I'm capable physically capable of doing it in some way. I'm going to have a strong incentive to do it under the table, cash business.
1: Sure, absolutely, but we don't have any idea of how we don't know how much is. of that goes on. It's it's very very difficult to measure. Uh, understandably, <laughs> because people don't want it to. <laughs> By be definition,
0: measured. yeah. But the reason we're we might think that could happen is that the definition of disability is not necessarily what we think of as I think some of us have in mind. Dis, dis, disabled means bedridden or. Um, uh, in, unable to work, but of course sure. that's not literally what it how it works in practice. How does it work in practice?
1: So, good question. The, so the definition of disability used by the Social Security Administration and, and you know adopted by Congress in 1956 is one based on it's really based on employment more than health. So it, it said, uh, essentially the definition is that you are unable to engage in substantial gainful activity in the U.S. economy uh, for reason of, uh, of health or disability. But what it really means is you're not able to work, and uh, you have to demonstrate to Social Security Administration that you're not able to work, and you, the reason you're not able to work has to be something to do with uh, your health. It could be your physical health or your mental health. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very elastic definition. And so, for example, when uh, unemployment rate is high, there are very few jobs, uh, you may be unable to work because the type of health limitation you have uh, means that the type of job that you would be able to do is not available at present, and that would qualify as a disability. So um, there is no uh, – disability is not a medical – term. There is no, you know, medical diagnosis called disability. Obviously there are medical diagnoses for you know any variety of illnesses, but disability is is just a broad, broad category that's a societal definition. What do we want to deem as unable to work? And uh the because that definition is very elastic, and Congress has made it much more so over time, uh it makes it possible for uh, many people who have been out of labor force for a while and are motivated to re- to receive benefits to potentially qualify for the program. Uh, and uh, one thing that's very telling about that is, you know, 25, 30 years ago, the predominant uh, source of new claims for people going on to the SSDI program uh, were uh, cancers and heart disease, essentially. And those comprised, uh, you know, more than half of all of the claims. This was and that 25 was years as ago? In the early 1990s. Okay. Um, in, at present, uh, more than half all awards are for mental disorders and musculoskeletal disorders. Um, so mental disorders are you know, things like uh, nervous disorders, schizophrenia, personality disorders, et cetera, and musculoskeletal disorders are basically uh, back pain tunnel. primarily. Carpal tunnel, I assume. Yeah, and those are very, both categories of disorder are very difficult to verify. So soft tissue pain is difficult to prove or disprove. Uh, it's not observable. If you Obviously, if you have a damaged disc in your back, that's observable. Soft tissue pain is not. Similarly, with mental disorders, uh, we don't really have a way to objectively verify most mental disorders. So it means that uh, a motivated claimant can, uh, you know, attempt to establish that uh, that they, in fact they do have those disorders and that they uh, stand in the way of their working. And social security administration doesn't really have the right to say we don't believe you uh, unless they can provide produce some direct evidence that you're engaging in you know fraud or deceit.
0: So let me let me take an example. Uh, I'm a am a stevedore. Uh, <clears throat> word I don't get to use very yep. often. Meaning a, a person who works through physical labor, say, on a loading dock of a, mm-hmm. a in a port, and I hurt my back, I really do hurt my back um, yep. th- there's no f- uh, fake or fraud here, and i can 't be a stevedore anymore. I just physically can 't do it right but of course there's lots of other jobs I can do, not maybe not as pleasantly, not as well won 't pay as much but i in that case, I assume can I get disability. So Just because I can't be a Stevedore?
1: Whether there's another job, the Social Security Administration thinks that you can do, and partly that depends on how trainable they think you are. So typically, uh, the, the criteria actually change as a function of your age and education. So uh, if you were say that happened to you when you were 45 uh, and you were a Stevedore, but you had you know some college education. Uh Well, they say yeah well you could there's a lot of type of uh, sedentary work that you could do that would use your you know numeracy and literacy skills, so uh, we they might be uh, unlikely to deem you disabled let's say instead you were fifty five and you had no more than a high school education. Well, they say well uh you're getting on in years and you're not highly educated so you 're difficult to retrain, so we would essentially say if you're if you can no longer do your old job, then you can't do any job, and in that case. Uh, you would be awarded disability. So it's actually it's sort of like uh, if you have a car insurance policy and you have an accident in an old car and you bring it to the body shop and the body shop says, well, I can be fixed, but it's going to cost $7,000. The insurance company says, well, uh, we'll yeah, it, it can be fixed, but it's not worth the money. We'll just call it total. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's sort of what the Social Security Administration does with people who are over 55 and uh, have low education.
0: So the other aspect of this, of course, is that If technology changes on the dock and stevedores are no longer employable and everybody's fine physically, there is a temptation, of course, to feel that your back hurts because it's – as you said in the other case with unemployment and during a recession. But here's a case of of technological change, structural change in the economy. It's going to be harder to find work. Presumably some stevedores find something that's not maybe as – well, pays as well as what they did before but others find that their back hurts. Is that what's going on, do we think?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it, it's, not, it, it's not as nefarious as it sounds. It, people, there are many people who apply for disability when they've, uh, when they've been unemployed for uh, a considerable period of time, and it's, it's often because they've exhausted all their other options. Yeah. So it, as I said, it's not a lifestyle that any of us would want to choose. However, it's better than unemployment without benefits pay, and no prospect yeah. of work uh, in the near future. So there's a classic study by... Uh, Kermit Daniel, Seth Sanders, and Dan Black that looks at uh, coal workers in Appalachia and essentially shows that when coal prices plummet, uh, disability applications and disability awards from the Appalachian regions rise very rapidly. And it's not because people become disabled when the price of uh, coal or the price of energy declines, it's because they lose jobs. Yeah, and sure. uh, if you've lost work and you don't have other options and you have some underlying health conditions, uh, it makes it much easier to make the claim that uh, you're unable to engage in substantial gainful activity in the U.S. economy because the type of job you did is no longer available, and, uh, and uh, your health is uh, stands in the way of your potentially doing some other job. So uh, disability claims rise very rapidly uh, when the unemployment rate rises, and you know we've seen a, a dramatic increase. So, for example, in 2011, there were 2.9 million applications for Social Security Disability Insurance. That compares, let's say, to 2005, when there were 2.1 million applications, or in 1999, when the economy was actually doing quite well, uh, 1.2 million. So, in other words, from, uh, from oh. 1999 to uh, 2011, the number of applications um, more than rose double. by uh, 1.6 million, more than doubled.
0: From 1.2 to 2.9. To 2.9 million, million.
1: That's right. So currently, there are 8.6 million. Disabled were adults, uh, disabled adults receiving Social Security Disability Insurance benefits. It's about 4.7% of all adults aged 25 to 64 in the United States. So it's roughly 1 in 20, so quite a substantial number. And the cost of the program is also very substantial. So uh, approximately about $130 billion a year, in cash payments are made through Social Security Disability Insurance, and then the Medicare component adds another approximately $70 billion to that. So you're talking about basically a $200 billion program at this point. Uh, so if you even just divide that by the number of U.S. households, uh, it's over $1,500 in uh, expenditure per U.S. household. And if you think about it, it's ultimately coming from taxpayers. That's, that's not at all a negligible program. In fact, it, it's a very large government program. So
0: let's... um. Let's again put this in perspective over time. You told us that from 99 to 2011, there was a more than doubling of applications. Now you just gave us a number that currently – was this for 09, the 8.6 million number? Or is that, uh, that is for 2011. So in the most recent data, uh, one in 20 Americans of age 25 to 64, which we would call work, one measure of working age, one in 20 are receiving disability. Correct. Uh, give me a number in the past that I can compare that sure. to. Sure. So
1: in 1981, uh, let's say about 2.2%, 2.3% of adults, uh, 25 to 64, re- were receiving uh, SSDI. So the fraction of the population receiving it has doubled. Uh, doubled.
0: And it's doubled uh, – So and also to put that um, – it's more than doubled in terms of the actual number on the rolls because oh, the workforce sure. was smaller yeah, in – The population was smaller, was smaller in 81. So we've had a, at least a 4 million person increase in the number of people classified as disabled, certainly receiving disability, which <laughs> raises, actually been
1: 4 million increase just since 1997.
0: <laughs> whoa. So yeah. – so um that's a non-trivial portion of the entire workforce. Um, Absolutely,
1: it's a, it's a very large number, and it's a very large amount of it. Uh, it's a very enormous. It's an enormous expenditure, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I should say that the program is growing in a way that it's actually even at a point in time one would understate the the actual size. it's, it's sort of tending towards because. As as I mentioned earlier, the the population going on the disability program are you know increasingly likely to be awarded benefits due to uh, essentially back pain or mental illness. Those are diseases with relatively early onset. Uh, They don't you know they don't happen when you're you know they could easily start in your in your forties, and they have very low mortality, um, which means that people will be on the program for many many years. So it used to be that. Or, and typically when people go on with, you know, dread diseases like cancer and heart disease, uh, they don't tend to live very long. Uh, and so the, you know, they're on the rolls and they're off the rolls a couple of years later uh, for very unfortunate reasons. Uh, the more recent crop of impairments on which people are, for which people are receiving benefits, they may be on the program for 15 or 20 years prior to reaching full retirement age, uh, at which point they transition to social security retirement system. So the, the kind of, net benefit they will receive over a lifetime, is much, much greater than earlier generations of disability uh, beneficiaries.
0: So this raises the obvious question. Uh, The U.S. workforce, the, the job distribution in the United States over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years has gotten safer in two dimensions. People are doing less dangerous things in general, and the things that are dangerous are getting safer. So it raises the puzzle, which is how could the work environment seem more disabling Uh, it appears to be or or of course there could be something else going on but this this is a it appears to be an epidemic of disability uh an enormous increase which we would if we didn't know anything we'd say well i guess people are getting hurt more on the job but as you point out these are the impairments are are not what we think of as disability traditionally people being losing an arm in a agricultural accident or a mining right. accident or, as you right. point out, heart disease.
1: Yeah, actually, it's, it, there are sort of two dimensions to this that are, that are uh, c- uh, counterintuitive. One is actually a very small percentage of people who goes on who go on to SSDI actually transition from workers' comp or something It's generally not due to an acute workplace injury. Uh, so it's certainly not... It, certainly, It was never the case, and it's even less the case now that most people are getting hurt on the job and going to disability. Right. So Good point. That's, uh, that's definitely not occurring. Uh, and the other thing is that You would think, look, jobs have gotten, as you said, safer. They're more sedentary. Uh, Medical care has greatly improved. And of course, ability to provide. So-called workplace accommodations, basically technology that allows people with work limitations to still be productive on the job, those things have all, all improved dramatically in yeah. the in the fifty years since uh, the SSDI program was introduced. So, all would say, "Gee, even if population health were holding constant, there ought to be fewer and fewer people who are effectively disabled because, of course, the types of jobs they need to do require less and less, you know, physical capability." Uh, so, it, it is quite uh, indeed quite surprising. Uh, you know, from that perspective, that we should see a kind of epidemic of disability. And I should also say there there really is no uh, evidence that suggests that there's an overall downward trend in population health. In fact, quite the reverse, you know, uh, lifespans well, yeah. have increased, you know, considerably in the last 50 years. And, and quality of life
0: has increased. People have artificial knees, hips,
1: and, yeah. Exactly, right. So the rate of disability among people over age 65 has declined by, you know, by some estimates by as much as a quarter uh, in the last 30 years. So uh, most evidence points to the fact that people are generally getting healthier. Now, there are some some countervailing indicators, so obesity and diabetes are the two things, the two kind of adverse population trends that, you know, are certainly working against the health of the U.S. population.
0: They don't limit your job effectiveness that much
1: uh you know i i mean i 'm sure they do uh, somewhat uh, yeah. certainly diabetes if it 's not managed well, can be a you know a major hindrance, sure. and uh obesity itself also limits people 's uh, I mean, interferes with health on a variety of levels but i don 't think this is by any stretch of the imagination the major factor behind the rise in disability roles. The major factor is the disability system itself that it 's become. More accessible, that the definition of disability has actually uh, been made considerably more elastic over time. And then the other factor uh, that should not be neglected is that uh, the labor market has gotten to be a much more difficult place for people without, you know, moderate to high levels of education. And most people who are on the disability system, the vast majority, or at least a substantial majority, are people without education beyond high school. And uh, typically, they're you know mid-career or older workers uh, who uh, have limited uh, formal education and they get displaced from the workforce, and uh, they turn to disability as a last resort. And that's why the program grows so so rapidly uh, when the unemployment spi- rate spikes, as it has done over the last several years. So oh, right. the concept, the combination of a program that is uh, uh, essentially becoming more valuable due to the rising value of medical care. Uh, and more accessible due to the liberalizations made by Congress with a labor market that's becoming less and less forgiving, uh, lower real wages for low-skill workers, fewer opportunities, and, in fact, less likelihood of getting health insurance. All that makes the disability program look a lot more uh, of a good option for many people.
0: Before I go on, I want to ask one more technical question. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, a doctor in the St. Louis area works in a hospital in a relatively low-income area, and he he would tell me that a lot of people come in complaining of back pain and other disorders, quote, hoping to get on disability. What role does the does a doctor have in that process?
1: Well, quite an important role, actually, because the uh, Social Security Administration is bound by law. Again, this is Congress's decision uh, in 1984 to give uh, sort of first weight to the evidence provided by the disability claimant's own uh, uh, medical counsel. So the the Social Security Administration does uh, contract to get what's called a consultative examination for each applicant. It actually has to give, uh, it it has to believe (laughs) is required by law to take more seriously the evidence provided by the claimant than by its own consultants, and only in cases where it has reason to believe that the claimant is uh distorting the information can it uh can it does it have the right to ignore it so there's a there's a very uh powerful uh kind of for-profit advocacy uh component to getting people onto SSVI. so there's uh many law firms that specialize just in this practice uh and they work you know uh, with counselors and physicians and so on to uh, build uh, a strong case to uh, support an individual's application uh, so you know, there's a well-known uh, collect- firm based out of New York called Binder and Binder uh, that uh, alone, I think, received more than twenty million dollars uh, in 2010 in payments uh, for from the Social Security Administration for claims brought against it by plaintiffs. So, or for claimants, just just to clarify how that works. Yeah. Essentially, if you apply for disability benefits, uh, if you're denied. Uh, you appeal either once or twice, and eventually your case goes up to an administrative law judge. And at that point, if you win the case, you get your back benefits. If you're represented by counsel, your counsel gets 25% of those back benefits up to about $6,000. By law? By law, yeah. That's the, And that, I should say that contract is structured to prote- protect claimants from, you know, paying
0: higher More than fees.
1: 25. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. you know. They, you know, they, they. In other words, they don't want them selling their cases. You know, yeah. saying, "Well, you can have ninety percent of my benefits yeah. if you just get me something."
0: I don't know. What, uh, I don't know how to react to that. That's special, you know. I, it's well, so, so the Social Security
1: Administration uh, each year pays more than a billion dollars directly to attorneys that prevail against it uh, on behalf of of claimants.
0: It's a wonderful world. Um, yeah, i just going to let that alone and let listeners. Again, it's a part of the world I didn't know anything about. It's fascinating. Uh, Your comment about recessions raises a question. It's well known that the recoveries uh, from recession in recent years have been, quote, disappointing in in both magnitude of of GDP growth and in certainly in employment growth. Certainly this recession has been extremely disappointing. But it's not a new phenomenon. It's a recent phenomenon. It's uh, – the 2001 recession had a similar pattern. I think the 1991 recession had a similar pattern. And by that I mean that the job growth – once the economy was deemed to be in recovery, was not of the magnitude that it had been in the past.
1: Yeah, it's, these are referred to as jobless recoveries, right? So-called, they it's, literally it's jobless, bad, but yeah, it's, the, it's, the rate it, of employment growth per unit output was slower than uh, had traditionally been. Seen. So,
0: what what possible um, contribution has the liberalization of SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, played in, in what we measure as the employment recovery? It's hard to well, know. Actually, it's actually
1: what it's done typically is it's actually masked the depth of the uh the job market problems that basically it's absorbed a lot of individuals who would otherwise appear on the roles as uh, long term unemployed. So I, I don't actually think it's contributed to the jobless recovery. It's actually contributed to the illusion of a lower employment rate than uh, we would might. see. We
0: might. It's hard to know. But But one thing that we've also noticed with these recessions, especially since 2001, is a decline in labor force participation, especially among men. The employment rate among men has been falling relatively steeply since 2001. There was a slight uptick at one piece of that recovery. Mm -hmm. How much of this SSDI – first of all, how much of that – of the roles are male versus female – and does that uh, maybe have a – certainly play a role, maybe not in in changing the employment numbers, but in changing the labor force participation numbers?
1: Sure. So uh, it, it is the case now that the, the disability program is almost half women. Uh, that wasn't true uh, 20 years ago, and, and an important reason why that wasn't true is because women wouldn't qualify for SSDI because they didn't have enough labor force history. Um, so a lot there has been uh, much more rapid growth among women than among men, although there has been substantial growth among both. The um, I think it certainly does contribute to the declining labor force participation rate of uh, particularly among low education males. Uh, so I, I do think it's significant in that. Uh, I don't think it contributes to the sort of. Uh, slow rate of job growth because i I tend to think that a lot of these individuals um you know many of them would not be uh not necessarily be employed and also in terms of if we really if it was really making sort of labor markets tighter such that employment wasn't growing because people weren't available, then we would tend to see wage increases among those groups, and we have not seen that. Um, maybe so they're I, just smaller might,
0: yeah. maybe they're just smaller than they otherwise would um, have been i
1: think but new but yeah they are definitely hard to, yeah. to know
0: um, now you talked about liberalization by congress um, how does that take place does the act get revised and definitions change
1: yeah so it's a really interesting story the um the in the last years of the Carter administration, they were very concerned that Social Security Disability Insurance Program was was growing too rapidly, and they started a kind of a clamp down on applications and you know trying to slow the rate of inflows by tightening up the eligibility criteria. The Reagan administration came in and they liked that idea and they kind of redoubled efforts on that. And simultaneously, they started something doing aggressively. Uh, continuing disability reviews, which are basically where you review an existing uh, claimant's case and uh, terminate them if you if you decide that it's not meritorious. And these two actions, uh, the Reagan administration was pursuing them with considerable zeal uh, during the early 1980s, during the deep recession, yeah. uh, the deepest post-war recession we'd had up until the current one. Uh, and so, uh, and they were terminating a lot of people, both, uh, both many, many fewer people were being awarded, actually applications declined, people recognized it, was just very difficult to get on, so they stopped applying, and then about 40% of the uh, cases that were reviewed by the continuing disability review process were summarily terminated, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, whether you thought that was meritorious or not, that was... Uh, Pretty unfortunate timing if this was coming in the middle of this very deep recession with the unemployment rate about nine percent, and uh, and so this kind of created almost a kind of a civil war, and I believe it was twenty one U.S. state supreme courts ordered their Social Security uh, field offices to stop complying with the continuing disability review process. So the states kind of went into revolt against this clampdown of benefits that was occurring during this very unfortunate time. And uh, eventually Congress reacted to that. Uh, It stopped the continuing disability review process, stopped the clampdown, and uh, made a number of really substantial changes to how the disability standard would be applied that then have reverberated uh, for the next 25 years. So one of them was, uh, instead of uh, the the previous focus of the disability determination decision uh, had been whether an individual met uh, one of the listed uh, impairment categories or had a number of impairments that came together to, to equal one of those impairments. So it was a, sort of a, you know trying to look them up in a big list of possible disabilities and see if they matched. Uh, Congress changed the operational definition of disability to uh, the ability to function in a work-like setting. So again, tying it even more closely to employment. Uh, The second thing it did was that Social Security Administration had previously uh, tended to um, uh, not give full weight to claims of mental illness and pain because they were difficult to verify. And Congress said, well, uh, if they're difficult to verify, then you don't know that they're not true, so you have to believe those uh, claims unless you have reason to know that they're false. So that increased the weight given to pain and mental illness. Uh, in addition, Congress said that Social Security Administration had to give highest weight to the evidence brought by the claimant uh, rather than its own consultative examiners. And finally, uh, they changed the rules regarding uh, continuing disability reviews. So previously, a CDR, continuing disability review, was essentially a, a de novo evaluation of the case. In other words, start from scratch and, and try to reach a new decision, are you disabled or not? Uh, Congress said, well, now uh, CDR, basically to terminate someone based on a disability review, you must prove that they've recovered uh, from whatever state they were in at the time that they were given benefits. Sure. So, so if they're given benefits by mistake, uh, that's not sufficient. Uh, they have to have recovered from whatever that state was to lose benefits. So it it really raised the bar for... Uh, Social administration to reverse any awards it had made.
0: And what year was that? This was changes? done in 1984. These... Okay, so um, presumably uh, the number of people who are taken off the rolls now is a very small number.
1: It is a very small number. That's correct. Is it close to zero? And, 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 interestingly, you know, there wasn't a big surge in disability awards. You know, after, you know, in the mid-1980s, because the economy was doing great and things were growing very, very right. rapidly at that point. So the labor market was in great shape. It wasn't until the early 1990s with the, that first jobless recovery, as you mentioned, that disability programs started growing extremely rapidly and has uh, not looked back since.
0: And it ratchets with upward with each recession because, as it you point out, it does. these people are on the rolls for a long time and they're still going to stay on the rolls.
1: Um, That that is correct. Do you have any measure
0: of how often people voluntarily come off
1: the rolls? Oh, it's tiny. Um, It's uh, it's uh, maybe it's less than one percent. That would
0: be tiny uh, per year. (laughs) And
1: and even many of those, it turns out, are. um, uh, yeah, even those many of those turn out to be illusory. So it's a very very small number. There are people who work, uh, as we as we mentioned, uh, but people tend to just do what what we call income targeting, which is they if they're working they try not to exceed that substantial gainful activity level uh, because they you know for understandable reasons do not want to forfeit those benefits. So uh, you know something like ten to fifteen percent of claimants appear to be doing some. Uh, you know, work for pay that's registered in the social security system, uh, in the, in the course of a given year, but uh, they do it at a, at a very modest level. Um,
0: how did the Americans with Disabilities Act affect the program, and how how does it interact with it, if at all?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. So the the notion of disability under the ADA,
0: which which completely, completely different,
1: around, which from passed, the notion of disability under the SSDI program. So they, as I mentioned, the
0: the ADA program the ADA passed in ninety
1: one? Uh, the ADA, was ADA passed in ninety-two, I believe it was okay. implemented in ninety four. I'll tell you in okay. one second. Let me just double check
0: that number. Um but it, it's after it's after these liberalizations that we talked about, but it's at the beginning definitely. of the beginning it's the beginning of this set of mild recessions with mediocre job growth.
1: Yeah, so it was passed in nineteen ninety. Um And the, so the, the, as I mentioned, the, the definition of disability under the SSDI program is the, essentially the inability to work. The disability program views work and disability as opposites. The ADA in 1990 says, and I'm quoting now, "The nation's proper goals regarding individuals with disabilities are to ensure equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self sufficiency." So the ADA Iro- ironic, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, says there's no, you know, uh, disability does not mean inability to work. It simply means uh, impairments that you know uh, may stand in the way uh, of uh, of self sufficiency. But our goal is to help you to be self sufficient. So the irony is that the disability program essentially can't help you until you prove that you are uh, incapable on your own, right? So it essentially says, you want benefits? Well, prove it to me by, don't be in the labor force, don't be making a decent income. Uh, you actually need to be out of work to prove that you are uh, you know, deserving of help. And then we'll help you, but not if you start working again at any serious level because then you're not disabled, so therefore you're not qualified. The ADA, on the other hand, says... Uh, people with work limitations should be given supports uh, to allow them to maintain economic self-sufficiency and enjoy the dignity and other benefits of work. Um, the, unfortunately, since the ADA was passed, the employment rate of the disabled has only gone down. Uh, and some people, uh, I would not say I'm one of them, uh, think the ADA itself is responsible for the declining rate of employment of the disabled it does, because
0: it raises the cost potentially of exactly of hiring a disabled. A disabled we don't know what the magnitude of that is, but it... exactly,
1: uh, and uh, it is the case that the employment rate of the disabled did start to go down even more rapidly when the ADA passed. However, uh, disability was growing for its own reasons at that point, so. Yeah, but I mean I think the short answer is there's there's no reason to think, unfortunately, that the ADA has done a lot for the employment of the disabled. And I, I will say that the the disability community or the disability advocacy community is uh is not at all uh happy with the design of the SSDI program either. I mean I don't
0: want to no, I could understand portray
1: that. them as monolithic, but they view the program as supporting dependency rather sure. than supporting independence. And they believe, or many believe, that the, a disability program should uh, give help to people as rapidly as possible to keep them in employment and keep them in the workforce rather than you know, not being able to provide any benefits until you've essentially proved yourself to be uh, you know, a ward of the state, essentially.
0: Now, before we turn to some possible alternative ways of structuring the program, which is what I want to spend on our last, half, or last third on um, – Let's just clarify the budgetary issues uh, one more time, which is um, we live under what I consider a fiction that our payroll taxes pay for our retirement. Um, It's really not true. It all goes into a big pot and it goes to fund the war in Afghanistan and food stamps and aid to rich farmers and all kinds of – and the national parks, things that you might like, might not like. Uh, but there is a a sort of legislative issue about the long-term sustainability of Social Security at if we keep up the pretense that right. it's funded under payroll taxes. And th- what you're telling me is that this program, which is part of that, uh, we always worry and hear a lot about the demographic changes, as the population ages, the baby boomers, that's me – Get older will soon be retiring, and my back hurts. By the way, I just want to mention that, and it may hurt, keep <laughs> me keep me from being hunched over the micro, econ talk microphone eventually. But because of the demographic changes and the rising healthcare costs, we understand everybody understands that the Social Security trust fund uh, something's got to give. Either either the benefits have to get smaller, the taxes have to get higher, retirement age has to change. What you're telling me is that there's this little quiet corner that's not so quiet anymore. A piece of this program that's part of this nexus of payroll tax and benefit structure that's in eating up an increasingly large share of it.
1: Uh, that That's absolutely correct. So, you know, to, to just put that in a very concrete way, in uh, 1984, before the disability program was uh, liberalized, uh, SSDI consumed one in ten uh, Social Security Administration dollars, um, and social—I should say—social administration. What I really mean is the combined expenditures of the retirement and disability program. Uh, by two thousand and nine, it essentially can, consumed one in five. So twenty percent of all social security uh, combined expenditures were going to the disability program. So it's claiming a, a much, much larger share of all the payroll tax inflows into to Social Security system uh, than it's actually contributing. So that 1.6 percentage points of payroll uh, that I mentioned earlier doesn't go uh, nearly far enough to cover the actual expenditures of the program. And so, you know, they, people often talk about the, the Social Security Trust Fund. The Social Security Trust Fund is actually, quote, is two trust funds. Neither which is a trust funds, fund, to tell you yeah. the truth, yeah. but <laughs> as you mentioned. But it's, it's uh, one is the Retirement yeah. Trust Fund, and the, the other is the Disability Insurance Trust Fund. And people talk about the day that those will go bankrupt. Well, this – the disability trust fund is now projected to go bankrupt uh, in approximately uh, five years, five to seven years, and the uh, Social Security Retirement Trust Fund uh, is not to predicted to go bankrupt for another couple of decades, but the, the sort of bankruptcy of the entire system is, keeps being brought closer to the present because, uh, the, you know, when you add the two trust funds together, uh, the Social Security Disability Trust Fund keeps sucking more money out of the total pot. Right. Um, now, when I say they're not really trust funds, because is, uh, as we know, the uh, Social Security System is a pay-as-you-go system, meaning that the, the money uh, isn't payments aside. of the current cohort of workers pays for the benefits of the uh, current cohort of beneficiaries. Right. There is a trust fund, which is an, a paper device that says this is the amount that's been paid in, this is the amount that's been paid out. But the amounts that have been saved, paid in in excess, in excess of what have been paid out, they were not saved. <laughs> They're just liabilities right, they just from on, one part yeah, of the government sure. to another part. Right.
0: Um, I, I have a note here. I don't know why I asked this. was going to ask this question. But I don't want to miss it. Uh, what are the incentives of the system for employers? We've been talking about employees. Uh, sure. How do employers enter into this?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there's – um uh, the the system provides no incentives to employers to reduce the claims made against it. although every employer or you know and worker you know jointly pay the payroll tax, uh, there's no what's called experience rating. in other words, uh, an employer who has more of uh, its workers going on to the SSDI program does not pay higher payroll taxes than one that has uh, fewer workers going on to the system. and so employers at the margin, uh, have, bear no no additional cost uh, when a worker goes on. Of course, they all have, eventually everyone pays uh, or will have to pay somehow for the many people receiving disability benefits, but it doesn't, whether a firm sends one worker, a thousand workers, or zero workers to SSDI, it does not affect its individual taxation taxes under the uh, disability insurance system. So there's no incentive, uh, unfortunately, for employers to... Uh, try to uh, see that the system is used responsibly.
0: And one more question. Um, This one's slightly um, a public choice question. I was going to say it's slightly cynical. Maybe it's cynical might not be the right word. But the expansion of definition of disability to include uh, mental health issues uh, is part of a general phenomenon in our society of of a a treatment of mental issues as – diseases, disabilities as, as physical issues, which, of course, as you pointed earlier, there, there's no literal physical diagnosis. We've had a, some very interesting podcasts in the past uh, on this issue of how the definition of, of what is a disease in and of itself is, of course, open to, defi- open to dispute. Uh, do we have any evidence on the role of um, the mental health industry lobbying for these changes that Congress put forward in the mid-'80s?
1: I'm not aware of any of that sort. I Because mean, they benefit
0: and, tremendously from it, right? Because they you now those law firms yeah. go hire them.
1: I mean, I, I should say that, that one thing I, I, a point I wanted to make earlier, there are really three public disability systems in the United States. So one is Social Security Disability Insurance, which is the one we've been discussing. Another one is the so-called Supplemental Security Income, the SSI, which is basically a less generous disability program for people who don't have a work history. It's what's called an entitlement rather than an insurance program. Uh, and that program, for example, if you were a person who had little or no labor force history or even were disabled at birth, you could qualify for SSI, which would give you less generous benefits and also access to Medicaid, which is the less right. generous public insurance program. There's also a for third matter. major yeah. public disability system, which is the Veterans Disability Compensation System, which obviously is for uh, veterans. So... Um, the SSI system actually uh, is the one that's uh, the one for individuals who don't have much work history. That one uh, handles a very large proportion of the very, very serious mental illness cases, like, for example, schizophrenia, where many people who have schizophrenia uh, have uh, have very limited or no work history, and they uh receive very very expensive uh antipsychotic antipsychotic medications and of which the government is often almost the sole buyer uh buying those pharmaceuticals through the SSI program and their pricing uh reflects the fact that the government is the sole buyer uh in other words some of those drug's will cause dosages will run into multiple thousands of dollars per month and so there, I, I think that is very much a case where the pharmaceutical industry has benefited enormously from this uh, particular policy, and uh, has worked hard to make sure that its its uh, the, its expensive and exotic pharmaceuticals are used uh, for treatment of those patients.
0: Journalists, it's, please take note. Uh, this is a great, <laughs> interesting think, story uh, that probably uh, hasn't been enough written about. Very interesting. Uh, yes, actually, my
1: my co-author Mark Duggan at the, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania has a very a uh, very insightful paper with Fiona Scott Morton, who now works in the Federal Trade Commission, on uh, pharmaceutical pricing and its relationship to uh, Medicaid expenditure. Um, the basically drugs in which Medicaid is the primary buyer uh, have just a mat- uh, amazing cost inflation. Um, it's that's supposed to the go the other. Essentially, is not price sensitive. It's supposed to go
0: the other way, right? They're supposed to be able to get a discount, a bargain, because they can. They're the biggest buyer, but it doesn't. Well, seem... so they're
1: required to get fifteen percent below the lowest wholesale price. But of course, that just means the pharmaceutical manufacturer, since there are very few private buyers, it'll just jack up the price and then give the government fifteen percent off of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's clever. Uh, it's a very high price they're getting a discount from. So uh, in in the SSDI program, I think this is this is less of uh, an issue. Many of the people on. Who have mental illnesses on SSDI will be getting more sort of garden variety antidepressants. Uh, maybe they'll be getting, uh, you know, lithium for uh, you know um, bipolar disorders and so on. But they wouldn't be getting uh, the uh, super exotic uh, antipsychotic drugs.
0: I was thinking about the diagnosis part, where the law firm to establish disability right. would hire a psychologist or a psychiatrist to testify or ass- assert. Existence of a disorder,
1: definitely. Yeah, I don't. Not so much on the pharmaceutical side, but on right. the consultative side, yes, it is a. There's no question that this employs a lot of uh, skilled medical labor.
0: Yeah, both of them depress me, um, but <laughs> I'm not taking anything for that right now. Um, yeah. So let's talk about alternatives to the current system. It, there's um, the the budgetary part of this is going to s- eventually start to get people to pay attention to it and. Um, some things will potentially change. What would um, you suggest?
1: Well, uh, so the, the disability system that we have now is a perfectly reasonable system for people who have a, an acute or uh, long-term disabling ailment that really prevents them from working. And for those people receiving medical care and uh, reasonable levels of cash benefits uh, on a long-term basis makes sense. And that's many of the people on the disability program. I don't want to suggest that you know er, that most people in disability program are you know uh, in one of these other categories. I, I mentioned a lot of the inflows onto the program are within these categories of these you know mental illness and back pain. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't mean the majority of all the people on there currently are in those categories. Um, but uh, the problem is that we don't have a system. We so we have a great long term disability system for people who need that. Uh, what we don't have is a system that's set up to. Help individuals who are struggling to remain in the labor force, uh, but may be facing uh, work limitations that make that difficult. Doesn't uh, we don't have a system that supports them to stay in work? In fact, we have a system that gives them a strong financial incentive to exit the labor force so that they can qualify for these long-term benefits. So, uh, one idea that uh, my frequent co-author Mark Duggan and I have proposed for, uh, as an idea to be explored, we wouldn't want to say that this is exactly shovel-ready is to provide a kind of a front end to the disability system. So currently, a third of American workers have what are called private disability insurance policies through their employers. Uh, And these private policies, what they do is uh, as soon as you uh, develop a work limitation, you report it to the disability insurer, and the disability insurer put a number of things in place to try to help you to remain in employment. They'll give you vocational training, they'll pay for assistive technologies, and they'll also give fairly generous partial wage replacement that kind of makes staying in work uh, potentially attractive because you might get, for example, let's say the wage replacement level is 65 or two-thirds. So if, you, uh, if you're if you not working, you'll get 60, 65 cents on a dollar. Uh, if you work half-time, you'll get a dollar on a dollar for the first half and $0.65 cents on the dollar for the other half that you're not able to work. And so they can try to provide incentives uh, to allow people to remain on the job, reintegrate into the labor force, and uh, keep them activated. Uh, of course, if that fails, people apply for SSDI, and the uh, the private insurer actually helps them apply because uh, it offsets its cash benefits for the benefits they receive against the benefits they receive from the Social Security Disability Insurance System. But uh, But our, you know, Preliminary evidence, and I really want to say it's it's very it's not complete. There's not enough experimentation here. Suggests that the return to work rates are higher, potentially higher among people receiving private disability insurance, and that's because those programs work to activate uh, key workers in the labor market, and they also, by the way, provide incentives to the employers because, of course, the employer is buying the policy. If the employer makes many many claims against it, uh, its premiums will rise. And so the employer, in some sense, also has skin in the game uh, for private disability insurance. So one idea that we propose uh, is uh, to essentially uh, create a kind of front end to social disability insurance where we we would use private sector insurers. Uh, Employers would buy these modest cost policies, and those policies would essentially provide incentives to workers to remain in the labor force and provide supports to do so, provide incentives to employers to keep their premiums low, and also serve as a form of deterrence where essentially you could not enter the SSDI program for some period of time before you had tried out the kind of, uh, the you know, this, this halfway house of additional supports and benefits to keep you working, except in, in cases where people had extreme uh, and, you know, immediate uh, medical needs that Basically, sure. work impossible. So that is uh, an idea that's clever.
0: That, and and what kind of reaction has has that received? I say that with a smile on my face, but uh, so I apologize for that. It's
1: I, I think it's it's received, I uh, uh, you know it's received different reactions from different quarters. I, I don't think it's received any, uh, it's, it's I don't think it's received any overt uh, uh, vituperous hatred or anything. <laughs> uh, people in the disability community have been somewhat favorable towards it because. <laughs> Again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they view the Social Security Disability Insurance Program as currently structured as working against the self-sufficiency and employment of the disabled. Uh, They believe that the program needs to be more extensive to help people while they're working uh, rather than to only help people when they stop working. Um, I think the... the, uh, You know, we've had discussions with congressional staffers and so on. They've been intrigued. I think a lot of people in... Uh, Congress really don't want to touch this issue no, because it's, it's not, not understood it's a, yeah. by the general public to be a problem.
0: Yeah.
1: and if it's not understood to be a problem, you know what political capital is to be gained by sort of you know ganging up on the disabled, which is how it could be spun and sure. perceived, right? We know what happens to anyone who you know talks about cutting Medicare benefits, for example. Um, so and and I think the other the other dimension of this, of course, is the program. That you know we 're proposing a study involves something of a small employer mandate, that employers would have to cover carry an additional bit of insurance it's very small relative to the cost of health care under the Affordable care act, but it's not zero uh, We argue that it would save money, but of course nobody no. uh, least of all the uh you know the current Congress likes mandates right. uh it's not even clear the Supreme Court likes mandates yeah. so <laughs> uh that um uh, so that that I think has you know is certainly something that's prevented this from gathering a ton of momentum so far.
0: Yeah, let me just give a re- an overall reaction because I I think what's I mean this has been an utterly fascinating conversation for me and I'm sure many of our listeners feel the same way. And for me, the reason it's so inter- interesting is that I'm I'm a classical liberal. I want limited government, and I don't think. Ensuring people against disability is is an appropriate role for government. I'd like to see private solutions, both of the kind you're talking about, that the private market already supplies. I'd like to see charities do it, voluntary action, and those have all been crowded out by government action. Maybe they'd create a better world. Maybe it'd be worse. But that's my general philosophical bias, as as my listeners as my listeners know. So, but what's interesting to me is that this program. On the surface, it's is a beautiful thing. It's Most Americans don't feel the way I do about government. They, they're more interventionist than I am. And when you tell them that we're going to spend money to help disabled people get by and it's not that generous, they're all for it. And they don't know very much, as Brian Kaplan's often pointed out, about how the program actually works. So you have this classic bootlegger and Baptist coalition that Bruce Yandles discussed on this program. You have the high-minded – Nice people who are who want to help disabled people, and that's certainly a good thing. I'm all for that. Just would like to see it done privately, but it's certainly a good thing to help disabled people. Then you have the people who have a self interest. Those are the people who can get disability, maybe who aren't really disabled by what most people would call disabled. The pharmaceutical industry which joins in as the as the bootleggers, and then you've got the the uh, psych the uh, psychiatric industry weighing in, and also maybe some folks, uh, some doctors and you, and the lawyers, of course. They're, so all those groups are, are self-interested, but they're using this very high-minded, lovely thing that most Americans think is a good thing. And the political incentives are all to keep it the way it is until it goes broke. And um, it's an extraordinary story to me. What's your – What, what, you what was the term you used, Bootlegger and – Bootlegger and Baptist. So the bootlegger, oh, yeah, wants, yeah, got it. The bootlegger <laughs> wants to ban um, – the Baptist right. is against drinking uh, – selling liquor on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day. And the, the bootlegger – is against selling liquor on Sunday because it's his day. He'd like to sell liquor under the table out of his still in the back. So the politician who votes uh, to close liquor stores on Sunday, he doesn't talk about his friend the bootlegger. He talks about his friend the Baptist. Uh, he right. wants to use the high-minded uh, altruistic motive, the self-interested motive that's in the background. And, and the part that I find, the part I find most fascinating about the bootlegger and Baptist idea is not just that politics makes strange bedfellows. It's that – How the program gets structured is going to be of great interest to the bootlegger, whereas the people who are just kind of behind it because it's a good thing, they don't pay much attention. So the average person listening to this program who's way above the mean or median in terms of awareness of political and public policy issues probably doesn't know much about this program despite that relative intelligence and, and education. But the people who are benefiting from it, they're working hard to make sure that it stays in place, and that's the way politics works.
1: Yeah, there is. Uh, that's. A, I think you put it pretty well. I mean, I think most people, you know, all I, I look, I, I, as much as anyone, think we need a disability program and that the country would be uh, a worse place off without it. And I don't think it would be entirely provided adequately by the private sector. I think there's a role for the public in it. Uh, but it's exactly the case that the, you know, the people who, you know, reflexively support it aren't very aware of the details, as you said. <laughs> and uh, the people who benefit from it, both the the individual beneficiaries and the uh, the kind of organizations that are part of the industry at this point, uh, they're very aware of the details. Uh, and uh, it is an extremely difficult thing to change. And I, I actually think that. But the greatest impediment to it changing at this point I think is not so much the lobbying per se, but the fact that the public is not aware of the problems just makes it politically a very unpleasant thing to get near. I just don't think any politician would view that as a good career risk at this point. Uh it's sort of like uh when Ronald Reagan, you know, came into office the goal of reforming the welfare system, he, you know, basically took fifteen years of demonizing welfare recipients and calling them welfare Cadillac driving welfare queens and so on, which I don't think was justified uh, before we had welfare reform under Clinton in nineteen ninety six. And uh, that, you know, the the truth was the welfare program had some serious problems and the consciousness raising at one level about the pro- program was very helpful, although at another level demonizing the recipients was probably was not so I think in the case of the disability system, I don't think we need to demonize recipients, yeah, but I do absolutely. think we need to make people aware of uh that the program is is probably at this point uh uh doing simultaneously much more and much less than it was intended to do. It's doing much more in terms of providing more benefits, it's doing less in terms of helping the disabled.
0: And I don't I don't mean to demonize them either. I, I right. certainly I, I just I think it's fascinating how it works in practice relative to how it might sound on paper.
1: Yeah, no, I think your bootlegger and Baptist uh, analogy is is a useful one. I think I'll reuse that if you don't mind. <laughs> no,
0: just credit to Bruce Yandel who coined the phrase. Okay.
1: My, guest,
0: my guest today has been David Otter. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Uh, my pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast